Well, good morning. Can you hear me? I think we're on. There we go. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, as you probably know, we were preparing to uh, uh, meet more virtually for the, the power outage, and so I had just finished recording my sermon yesterday, and I told uh, Jeff to not expect as much fire and brimstone this morning because I had just recorded the sermon after I watched Michigan State blow a 13-point lead in the final minute and 30 seconds, so I was a little angry when I was doing my sermon yesterday. A uh, little more tame this morning, so... Uh, if you would with me, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is to him a sin. Well, we live in a society which has an identity crisis. I think that's noticeable at this point. Now, the problem is not that people don't know what they're about. The problem is not that people are uncertain of what they do, i.e. their habits. It's not really even a problem of opinion. Ask anybody on the street and they could certainly give you an answer for anything. Our identity crisis is not about what we think, it's who we are. There's never going to be a more challenging, even more personal question than what's presented in the epistle of James this morning. What is your life? One man may say life's a feast, and yet another wise man, life's a fast. One said life is a challenge, and yet another life is submission. What is your life? How would you answer that? Maybe you say life is a success. Life is a failure. Life is a disappointment. Life is uncertain. Life is hopeful. You'll never find a more personal, even more painful question than to ask, who am I? I'm convinced that there's only two types of people in this world. Not rich and poor, not black or white, not Republican or Democrat, but only those who are dead in sin and those who are dead to sin. And this morning, ask yourself, which one am I? Our identity crisis has been a fuel for those who are longing for something. It's what pushes people to try and find a cause greater than themselves. Our society is desperate to find out who they are. It reeks of a yearning for something that no worldly craving can fill. Nothing on this earth, not even a righteous cause, can truly satisfy. Maybe you tell yourself, if I could just have this one job, if I could have this promotion, if I could just have this relationship, this new car, this new house, then I will be complete. Well, who are you? It's a question that I asked myself one snowy winter night about two years ago to the day, actually, uh, and we had a snowstorm much like the one we had this past week. And it was probably the most difficult night of my life as I go back and think about it. It was the night that I broke things off with a girl that I had dated for two years. And it, it was a place, as much as this is hard for me to admit and be honest about, it was a place where I think in those two years I had forgotten so much of my identity. I had forgotten so much of my purpose in Christ. 
I had forsaken all of those things, even as I was in Bible school, for the relationship that I had. And I lost sight of even who God was in those moments to some degree. I had all the knowledge, I had all the training, all the skill, and yet somehow you can still forsake knowing God personally. So I sat there kind of numb. Uh, it was kind of a shock to me. I had broken things off. We had a massive blizzard coming in. It was late at night. I realized I should probably get back to my university. And so as I'm driving back, I just had to hear something. So I turned the radio on. And I kid you not, the first song that comes on is Who Are You by The Who. And if you know this song, I think it was actually uh, the intro song to like NCIS or CSI from the 2000s. The song itself is literally just the question, who are you, who, who, repeated over and over again. And the great irony of listening to that song just absolutely broke me as I considered what I had lost and forgotten about myself and about God over those last two years. Because I realized it wasn't a matter of how much I worked, how much I volunteered, how much education I had. I, I knew all of the right things, but I realized even though that those things are important, you don't need those things to change the world. You don't have to know a lot about the world to truly know yourself and your purpose. You just have to know a few eternal, groundbreaking truths that will give you an infinite sense of peace, purpose, and belonging. Society tells you that you have to change the world, but this morning I want to tell you the world has already been changed, and all you have to do is find Christ to know who you are and be a part of that change. So this morning I have three principles, what we can do to know our identity, what we have to put off, and what we have to put on in order to secure our identity in Christ. But before we look at that, let's go ahead and look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the ability to come into your house, even when uh, perhaps just a couple days ago we didn't expect it. And yet here we are willing to listen to you, learn from you. I just pray that you'd move your word in our hearts, speak to us, and let us know who we are in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you want to know what it means to have your identity, the first thing is what we have to see identity is not. And that is we have to beware of pursuing worldly schemes, according to James. We have to be, uh, we have to be careful of what we're pursuing in a worldly sense. This is something we've just been working through up at university the last couple of weeks is how do you imagine yourself to be in the world but not of the world as a Christian? How do you imagine yourself to be a part of society but yet not tainted by the things of society? And I think a lot of the answer lies into what your intentions are. Be careful not to pursue plans made in a vain heart. Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell. Don't make plans in a vain heart is what James is saying. It was common practice in the ancient world to physically travel if you wanted to be a, a tradesman, a salesman. Typically, people were specialized in one skill. They were brought up in their family to be a certain craftsman or tradesman. But it's often common practice to have to travel to do those things, to go to various cities. And here are the men, according to James, who are counting their identity in the plan they have for the future. In the ancient world, there was no Walmart or Amazon. The apostles didn't go on to Amazon to check their order status for loaves of bread and fish to feed the 5,000. It was simply what you had in person, what you could travel for. But here the problem is, James is saying, it's not the issue that they're doing these things. The problem is they're planning it in a vain heart. They're putting their identity in their plan to go buy, sell, and make a profit. 
perhaps you don't travel for trade or for work. Maybe you do. Maybe you're kind of all around the country or the world for that, and some people are certainly called to that. But what's the plan that you set in your heart to travel spiritually? Does God decide your decision-making as you make plans for the future? Do you make plans in a vain heart about relationships, changes? Do you assume that something is God's will just because you want it to be so? I'm always amazed at my parents' sheer will to trust in God's will growing up. It seemed that any time there was this life decision that my parents had to make, they just set an extraordinary example of always giving it to the Lord and trusting in him completely and fully with it. I mean, obviously God doesn't always give a yes or no answer, but there was something in the way that my parents were so willing to yield to God's plan that certainly set the right example for me. But the message here is clear. Don't wrongly put your hope in things of the future. There's no guarantee these things are even going to happen in James. Obviously, it's common practice. Maybe they're going to Damascus, to Alexandria, big cities to go trade. The travelers could get stopped. There's not even a guarantee that they're going to get there. Maybe they'll get there and they won't even be able to buy or sell. But the Bible's clear in Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19.21. So be careful not to make plans in a vain heart. It's a vain to count blessings before we even have them. This world reeks of the identity crisis. People want to hope in something so much that they're turning to things they don't even have yet. They simply just want to want something. But it's not the job that you have. It's not the money that you hope to make, the things you don't even have where we place our identity. But also recognize that where, what your heart pursues, where your heart is, is where your God is. End of verse 13. They can go into such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. The planners were driven by the profit, the wealth, the desire, that's where their God is because that's what they were focused on. And what might it be on the fleshly altar of your life this morning, the fleshly altar of your heart that we maybe don't even consider or think of? It seems a lot of times we want to offer God most of ourselves, but keep just a little something for us. It seems that sometimes we'll say, God, I'll give you the money I want to give you. I'll give you my new car, my golf clubs, but don't push on me too much sort of thing. And we're not really willing to yield what truly God requires of us, and that is namely our soul. Mark 8, 36 through 38. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. But what you think about, where your God is, is what you let influence you the most. What do you think about most in your daily life? That's probably where your God is. Maybe a good way to think about that or to kind of dissect yourself a little bit is, what is the thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? What's the thing you think about when you go to bed at night? Perhaps it's that thing that has control over you. Maybe it's the cause of your happiness. Maybe it's the cause of your despair. But could it be we make things out of God's that we... We make gods out of things that we don't even intend to. Maybe you've heard it before. If you're put on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And while it's an interesting metaphor, it's incomplete in some areas because obviously anybody can read a Bible, have a scripture tattooed on their arm, and appear to be a Christian. But if we could dissect your mind, 
If we could look into the inside of your mind, divide up your hobbies, your interests, your focus, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? So think about that. We also have to be careful, and as I've kind of alluded to before, be careful not to pursue confidence in the uncertain future. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, uh, there are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and that the other is that we do not know. I've also heard it said, there's only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And maybe that one's not entirely true, because I'm not expecting to get to the other side of eternity and be taxed by Jesus. So, but the principle is certainly there. The principle is certainly true, and that is that the future is only what God has held in his hand, verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. But what I do know is from Ecclesiastes 5, 14, and 15. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he comes from the mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. I think that's the same thing repeated in Job chapter 1. Naked I came, naked shall I return. There's nothing you're going to take out of this life. So why do we place our identity in the things that we want or the things that we hope to have? One of the very unfortunate things where I think society has found their identity is in this thing we call the American dream. I think the American dream can easily give this false sense of security. And outside of maybe a 45-minute sermon on Sunday, outside of the time maybe you spend in your Christian circle, you're going to be bombarded by ads by the world telling you, here's the security where you need to find your identity. And this might be the only time you hear this week where I urge you, don't buy it. John Piper, in the year 2000, which in the true spirit of talking about how fast time goes, as we'll get to, that was a year before I was born. Think about that, 2000 was a year before I was born. But in his sermon, Don't Waste Your Life in the Year 2000, John Piper calls it, the seashell collection gospel. Quoting Times Magazine, John Piper read, Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. And there is what they're doing with the extent of their identity. The real tragedy is the hope that they've placed in the things that they can just take with them to the rest of their life. Think about maybe if you get to heaven and the thing you say to God is, here you go, God. Here's my seashell collection. That's what I did with the end of my days. Here's my softball skill, my 30-foot trawler. As Pastor Brad always alludes to, I've never been to a funeral where I see the hearse tugging a boat behind him to the cemetery. The things you can't take with you is the thing that society tells you to place your identity. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying retirement's unbiblical. Certainly there's a time where uh, men and women have to stop working and come home to their family. But the sense of security and identity that we can somehow just retire from things of this world, we can retire from faith maybe. People say, I've volunteered enough. I'm at the end of my life. I'm ready to be done. But there's no serving enough, placing your identity in the things you can just kind of lay back and retire. Our service doesn't end here on earth. In fact, it continues into eternity. So just think about that. 
But it's this, this, this false sense of the American dream, I would say, has influenced us spiritually in the thought that God is almost this vending machine, right? People treat God that if you just have enough faith, you pray hard enough, God's going to give you everything that you want. I think it's just a spiritual spinoff of what we might consider to be the security of placing your identity in stuff. Is placing your identity in the things that God gives you that your heart wants. But God isn't a genie. He's a person. And there's no taking Jesus just when the payout is right. I think the reason why televangelism is so popular is because it's easy to take a Jesus who gives you a new car, a new house, everything you could ever want. But we have to take Jesus where the difficulty lies too. And that is that namely we must dwell on eternity. We have to think about and we have to be eternally focused. It's something that not a lot of people really want to do, I've noticed. A lot of people always say, you bring that idea up, well, eternity scares me. I don't really want to think about eternity. The idea of going somewhere forever and it never ending, it's a scare, it really is a scary thought. But fortunately for some, and unfortunately for others, we weren't created to just be here on earth for 75 years and then just be over. I, I think a lot would change if we really focused on placing our identity in eternal things. And we have to be humbled at our significance when we think about eternity. Verse 14, what is your life? And there it is, the very pointed personal question. And I think in a lot of ways that question can't be answered collectively. It's a question that has to be answered individually when we consider our brevity before God, when we think about eternity. One of the most uh, interesting analogies I've ever seen in a public high school graduation, I think it was my sophomore year of high school and the graduation for our students that year I was at, they had this first grade teacher, she came up and uh, she, she was doing the speaking, she was the guest speaker. She took this like 40 foot rope and she, like, wraps this rope all around the graduates. And, like, nobody really had any idea what she was doing because, I mean, it'd be a little weird if I walked in here to start my speech if I, like, wrapped a rope around the auditorium, around the sanctuary. But that's what she did. She gets up for her speech, and she starts wrapping this rope around people. And she gets up to the stage, and she gets up there, and she, in her hand she has this, this rope with just this little tiny piece of red tape at the end. And in her speech, she's holding this rope. We have no idea what the rope is for. She's going through kind of the typical... Uh, you know, find your purpose, find your identity in life. And then at the end of her speech, in a public school, I'll never forget the analogy she made. She said, you might have been wondering what this rope is for. And she said, how often do you forget about eternity? And this little piece of red tape at the end symbolizes your time here on earth. And that entire rope wrapped around you guys represents and can't even begin to compare to the time in eternity. So what are you doing with this little piece of red tape? What are you dwelling on with this piece of red tape that influences that entire rope around your identity for the rest of your eternity? And it was a great, it was a, it was a shocking image in a public school to hear somebody to uh, commend students to place their identity in Christ, but that's exactly what we had. The problem is a lot of times people want to make themselves the protagonist of their own story, right? People, people make their identity that little red tape as the only thing that really exists to them. Think about human history. Oftentimes, before you're born, it can seem like what happened didn't, like, it's not really true, right? Like, for me, that's the 90s. For me, it's like the 80s and the 90s, which is weird. But to me, it's like, I know it happened, but I wasn't there. 
So to where existence, my perspective, the protagonist in my story starts when I can remember in the 2000s. And a lot of people tend to put themselves in their own story, make themselves the protagonist. But have you considered that when we fail to consider our brevity before God, we can even place ourselves as God in our own story? We can make the sum of our time here on earth the extent to which we understand human history, and that's all that really matters to us. So be careful about that. You might feel on top of the world when you do that. You might feel on top of the world to make yourself the, the God of your life and your brevity, but it's often the case that that's so opposite in just such short time. One, one day you're on top of the world, the next you're to the complete opposite. And I think that's what happens when we fail to consider our brevity. Psalm 8, 3 through 4, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should visit him? And if you want an image to consider your brevity, just how insignificant our existence is to the true God, and yet he still chooses to love us, what is man that you are mindful of him? I think one of the best places you can go is out in the wilderness to see the work of God's hand. I've been blessed enough to go on wilderness trips. I, Boundary Waters in Minnesota, uh, Appalachian Trail in North Carolina and Tennessee. And I'll tell you, there is something when you take yourself maybe out of your daily rhythm that forces you to consider what it's like to be before God, the significance of his creation. So I just encourage you to do that. Find that space. You can maybe sit back, step back, and dwell on eternity. Life is always likened to something short in Scripture. And so we must consider our fleeting perspective. The end of verse 14. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In Scripture, life is always likened unto something that's very short. In 1 Peter 1.24, it is because flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. In Ecclesiastes, the image that you get if you flip to Ecclesiastes, over 50 times you'll see either the word uh, vanity or you'll see the word meaningless. And it's a really weird uh, depiction that the author's given you. Meaningless, all is meaningless, says the preacher. But the word in Hebrew is actually the word hevel, which means smoke or vapor. And it's the same image that James is conjuring up here. It's not that life has no meaning. It's not that things are meaningless. It's that it's so often that life just barely has enough time to take that shape. Then before you know it, it's gone as you try to grab the smoke and it slips out from your fingers. In Isaiah, the image is a tent that gets rolled up and moved on in the night. Scripture always likens life, and even as a 20-year-old guy, it's, you know, I, I still think I have my whole life ahead of me. It's amazing how fast time really moves. If you're 50 years old, you've lived 20% of American history. Just think about that. If you're 25, you've lived 10% of American history. And we, we think of American history as just, you know, this is ancient. 1776 is so long ago. Time moves fast. From the distance of us to Jesus, you could probably trace your lineage to that time in about 100 people, 100 chains of generations. Just crazy how short time really is. Time moves faster than we think. And if we delay things, if we put things off, if we place our identity in things that give us things in the moment, 
we lose something in our future, in our eternity. It's reported that Colonel Rawl, the commander of the British troops in Trenton, New Jersey, was playing cards when a courier brought him an urgent message stating that Washington was crossing the Delaware River. Rawl, playing cards, took the letter, put it in his pocket, and didn't bother to read it until he had finished playing his card game. Then afterwards, he took out his letter, read it, realized the urgent situation, but it was already too late. His procrastination had caused many of his men to be killed, and the rest of the regiment was captured. Only a few minutes' delay cost him his life, his honor, the liberty of his soldiers. Earth's history is filled with wrecks of half-finished plans and half-executed resolutions. It reminds me of a poem I once read. Procrastination is my sin. It brings me nothing but sorrow. In fact, that I know I should stop it, I will tomorrow. And how true it is that when we fail to consider our brevity, how short life is, we put things off. Before you know it, it's here and it's gone. It's a vapor. You grab it and it's gone. It's there, barely takes shape and leaves us. But not to discourage you, I hope you see that there is meaning in an uncertain life. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We shall live and go to this place and do this or that. If the Lord wills is where our meaning is found. Our purpose isn't in the plans that we make for the future that we're uncertain of. It's in considering the Lord's will. As I mentioned, the, the will of the Lord can be a hard thing to decipher. In Scripture, there's two types of will. There's the revealed will and the hidden will. The revealed will of God would be his moral commands, what he reveals in Scripture to us. And that's the, the will that is a clear yes or no. But maybe God's hidden will is something that's a little less certain. Uh, and, and I think the, the author here, James, is trying to make it clear, if the Lord wills, doesn't mean you necessarily have to know the will of God all the time in a yes or no. It's just God is already directing our steps. If the Lord wills, this will happen. And how much would our life change if we let the Lord guide every one of our steps? I think it would come as a humble submission to God. We would be less anxious, wouldn't we? First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Leonard Ravenhill said, sometimes it's not long before you're sure that you're one of God's chosen people, that you realize you're one of God's frozen people. And when we fail to consider our, our life and, and during God's will for our lives, Maybe you've experienced that too. You're so certain, you're so on fire for the Lord, and then something just dies when you fail to live into the will and let God direct your steps. But that's where the meaning is found. If, you're ne if you neglect God's will, what are you really saved from? I mean, what is it that's really different in your life? If I were to ask you, First uh, Peter says, we're supposed to be a different breed of people. We're a chosen people, a holy generation. If I were to ask you, are you saved? And you said, yes, you're, you're, I'm saved. And I'd ask you, well, I'd probably follow that up with, well, what are you saved from? You might say, well, hell and the wrath of God, and sure, that's true. But are you saved from the things that sent you there? Are you saved from the lying, the lust, the cheating, the stealing? Are you saved from the things that would even make your identity misplaced in the first place? And I think a lot of times as Christians, we cognitively ascend to the gospel. We cognitively agree with the facts of the Bible, but it's difficult to truly trust the Greek word fiducia, placing yourself 
into the word of God and truly relying on God. If you're carrying a 100-pound sack on your back, and I know what it's like to carry a lot of weight over distance, even just through mountains in the Appalachian Trail. If you're carrying weight on your back and somebody came up to you and offered to take that from you, and they took your sack off and you walked up the rest of that mountain, the rest of the hill, and you got to the top of the hill and somebody asked, well, where'd your sack go? Are you still carrying all that weight? And you said, well, I don't really know. Why do we do the same with our sin? And we carry the weight of sin, not realizing somebody's taken that from us. And when people ask you, well, how is your life different? Well, I don't really know. So be careful about that. Be careful to focus on not priding ourselves and neglecting the will of God. And see, lastly here, I have to get through this kind of quickly. Our focus must be greater than ourselves. Is not the greatest sense of purpose when you find yourself caught up in a cause greater than yourself? For me, it's Michigan State basketball, right? I'm watching this. I'm invested into the team. I'm invested in the things that they're doing. I lose a little bit of sense of myself, right? I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about the cause, what they're doing, what the team is doing. And so maybe you find yourself there that the greatest moments of joy are often when we're caught up in something beyond ourselves. And again, that's a question, what is your life? It can't be answered collectively, but individually you have to ask ourselves, where are our, where are our identities in the cause that is greater than ourselves? Recognize that we are prideful when we neglect God's will. Verse 16, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James isn't just saying it's unfortunate to boast in your arrogance. He's saying it's an evil to boast in your arrogance. And the image that he's conjuring up here is in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there were these people called braggarts. And braggarts were people in a society driven by this quest for knowledge and reasoning and discernment. Braggarts were people who would often come out into the street and ask very pointed questions to really make you think and make you consider, almost puffing themselves up with knowledge. And they're spewing stimulating questions, their acclamations, how much they know. Obviously, we don't have braggarts in society other than maybe what we call politicians nowadays. But how might you be a braggart in your life? How might we handle the way that we spew out our own will and neglect what God has for us? Maybe it's something you even do just on your phone when you compare yourself. So easy in my generation. People compare themselves. As a Christian, do you say, well, I might, I might not be living right with God, but at least look at what they're doing. At least I'm not that bad. I think we find ourselves in a dangerous place. We become prideful when we neglect the will of God and start trying to find attention elsewhere. But lastly, realize you can know the truth and still neglect your purpose. You can know the truth and still neglect your identity. Verse 17, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is to him a sin. We have to make our identity not a matter of just what we know. You can know all of the right things, but still not make God the focus of your life. And maybe that's the great challenge of the Christian life, is the more we know about God, the closer we get to him. How much do we really know him personally? James is called the practical epistle for a reason. It's a very practical book with lots of practical application of knowledge. And earlier he says in James 1, through 24, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately gets, forgets what kind of man he was. And we, do we do that spiritually? Do we do that metaphorically? Where maybe church is your gas station, where you come fill up, you just get, get what you need here, and then you go on to the rest of your life. You forget your face in the mirror, your spiritual life in the mirror. It's a difficult place to be in. And I think we're blessed with a church of, uh, of service. I think my time here has been an absolute blessing to see how much people truly live out the word and how unified we really are in that. But I don't think that's really the case in much of Christianity nowadays. Even just up at Bible school. I mean, it, it's really amazing when you think about this quest, people knowing the right things but not living the truth. I think, and to be honest with you, some might disagree, but I think Bible schools have almost become this sort of assembly line who produces mechanical preachers who know about the shed blood of Christ but often won't offer the first drop of blood of their own. It's full of people who often know the right things but fail to live out the truth. If 12 men in the first century in an upper room could turn the world upside down, what's stopping the thousands, of which I'll be one of them in May, coming out of Bible school, What's stopping the thousands from making that same impact and changing people's identity, finding that transformation? Because our convictions are ultimately proven by our actions. If your identity is in the things you know, it's going to come out in the things of how you live. Just as the traders were driven by wealth, we should be driven by the wealth of gifts from the Lord. Choosing not to use them is to have our head and our heart misaligned. And James says it's not just failure, it's a sin. And that's where I was two years ago, that snowy winter night, realizing with maybe a little help from the who, who are you, that I had placed so much of my identity into the things I knew. I did all the right things. I went to class. I got good grades. I went to church. I volunteered, taught Sunday school. And yet there was something misaligned from my head to my heart I realized I had a mind full of theology and not a heart full of Christ. Pastor Nick, I've heard him say it before. I don't think you came up with it. I think you're quoting somebody else. He said, do you miss heaven by 18 inches? Do you miss heaven from the distance of your head to your heart? 18 inches. So be careful not to place your identity in just the things in your mind, but in the things in your heart, the transformation God has brought. And maybe that's convicting to you. Maybe you don't really know where your head and your heart align. But even better this morning would, to be get, to, would be to get right with God right now, just right where you are. Accept the idea that Christ has came not to just provide a challenge to you, but to provide change to you. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, I encourage you to pursue that, knowing that Christ came, died, to make that relationship possible. So we have to be careful. We have to consider what it means to live in brevity. We have to put off something that is namely the schemes of this world we have to put on Christ. We have to put on neglecting our prideful will and pursuing something that lasts for eternity. And I hope you're willing to consider that this morning. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the ability to come into your house. Maybe to take a minute to think about things we don't often think about enough. And how much would our world change maybe if we were more focused on eternity? more focused on the things that last indefinitely. God, I pray you would allow us to put off our old, old selves, allow us to put off the schemes we might make, the plans in our heart, 
and to put on your will, to focus on the things that you have for us, to think eternally. God, let it not just change us today, not just this week, but for the rest of our lives. Let it be an indwelling, not just an indwelling, but an undoing that changes our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message that we've heard uh, from the speaker. And Lord, we just ask that you would apply those things that we need to apply to our hearts that we might not lose out on those 18 inches. Lord, it's one thing for us to know truth. It's another thing to fall in love with your truth to such a degree that we might walk in it. So Lord, may that be the case as we go from this place. And Lord, lastly, we pray for those who are still without power in our community and those even here in our own congregation who are still struggling. And Lord, we just ask that uh, we would work together to take care of each other. And Lord, to reach out to our neighbors with the love of Christ, with what they might need. So Lord, thank you. And just go before us this week. We ask in your son's wonderful and awesome name. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.